This is the 200 Churches Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10. If I were planning a, a church today, I would have one requirement for membership, and that is, if you want to join this community, this tribe, whatever we're going to call ourselves, this mission, you have to stand in front of your brothers and sisters and for 10 minutes tell the whole story from Genesis to the maps in your own words. Tell me the story of Jesus from Genesis to the maps. Welcome to the 200 Churches Podcast, ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. Now, here are two guys who have been encouraging thousands of pastors all around the world, good friends, pastors, and podcast partners, Jeff and Johnny. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Jeff Cady. I'm here in the mobile studio. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee tonight attending one of the Exponential Learning Communities. You can check that out at exponential.org. If you've never been there, I'd suggest you go there. Tons of great and free encouragement and training available for you there. Our guest for today's episode is Leonard Sweet. He's the author of more than 200 articles 1,500 published sermons and 60 books. Leonard's recent publications include the groundbreaking textbook on preaching called Giving Blood, A Fresh Paradigm for Preaching. His other books include From Tablet to Table, The Bad Habits of Jesus, and the fall 2019 release of the 20-year successor to Soul Tsunami, Rings of Fire, Walking in Faith Through a Volcanic Future. Leonard Sweet works with graduate students at four institutions. He works with graduate students at Drew University, where he has occupied the E. Stanley Jones Chair, George Fox University, Tabor College, and Evangelical Seminary, where he currently holds the Charles Wesley Senior Professorship of Doctoral Studies. In 2015, he launched his own homiletics resource, PreachTheStory.com. You should check that out. It's awesome. Hey, here is today's episode with Leonard Sweet. Len Sweet and Michael Beck, it is really good to have you on the podcast. Welcome to both of you. Michael, you've already been on once, so I'm going to throw the intro to Len. Uh, Len, I've already set this up in the introduction to this episode, uh, what you do. There's, you know, it took me half an hour to go through the list of (laughs) the things that you're involved in. But uh, one thing I don't know. And um, I can edit this out if because every once in a while I get a strange answer. One thing I don't know is about your family. Tell me about your family. Well, I'm after 30 years, I became a widow. And uh, uh, after a year later, I have remarried. So I'm a newlywed. A newlywed. Oh, man. So you've you've been through it. You've been through it. You know what? Suffering, grief, and loss is all about. Yep, and uh, and now uh, new hope and new life. So awesome. Uh, well, that's good to hear. Alabama Pentecostal. So I don't know what that's going to do to me, but <laughs> <laughs> you should have loud church services, right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, a missionary at that, a an Alabama missionary Pentecostal. So I'm I'm in for a, a ride, a roller coaster. I think. Well, you're you're Methodist, correct? Yeah, in many ways, you know, Pentecostals are like 21st century Methodists. Uh, uh, although some well, of them are becoming more Methodist than Pentecostal, but that's another story. Well, I thought maybe she was doing evangelism dating with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to ask her that. <laughs> well, well, that's good to hear. Uh, that's good to hear. I'm happy for you. Um, it, so, is your latest book is your latest book really contextual intelligence, or is there one since then? There's a couple since then. One is called Saint Is, which is a uh, story of it's the first volume of the Christmas story from the standpoint of Mary's donkey. And so it's a, a biblical imagination um, let loose. And then um, I have a series of that um, that have started coming out of um, it's called Songs of Light, SOL. And uh, these are these are meant to be read to to people uh, out loud to people who are either in dying, the first volume or in critical condition. So and there'll be a third volume, too. So, yeah. 
we've been busy. Nice. I think that I have one of those actually, but it may be it may be from somebody else. But I've got a it's something that a chaplain gave to me, and it's for people who are facing the end, and uh, it, that's interesting. Uh, Lynn, uh, tell us about tell us about contextual intelligence. You you wrote it with Michael, or you guys you guys at least collaborated uh, on this. There there are a couple books out there with a similar title, contextual intelligence. But you talk about the Issacharians, and now we're in, of course, twenty twenty one. I mean, we're we're way out there now. And so, talk to us about just for a minute, uh, kind of in a nutshell, contextual intelligence as you would describe it to somebody who's never seen the book yeah well there's an old uh old saying location 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 and Mm -hmm. uh, what michael and i are saying context 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 it's all about context and uh the word contact context con is latin meaning together with and texo means weave so contextual means weaving together of everything to see it holistically and so what we're trying to do is to help people uh, to, to see things in a more holistic fashion. That's the essence of uh, what, we're, what we're about. The, the, the unique thing that we bring to the whole contextual uh, intelligence discussion is that we are doing it from a biblical uh, standpoint. We're connecting the dots from a biblical uh, framework. So the word actually comes from a book that we reference and cite quite a bit in our book, In Their Times, which is a business corporate leadership book. And they found out that the number one desired quality of the top 100 business leaders of the 20th century was what they called contextual intelligence. So we're we're using their phrasing and uh, building on it in a uh, theological, biblical and, uh, and ecclesiastical base. So based on that, if you were to coach or actually do it yourself, plant a church. So let's use my my community, for example. I'm in the Midwest. I'm just about a half an hour east of Des Moines, and I'm in a town of about 15,000 people. If you were to plant a church in my town, what are the some of the things you would look for? What What are some of the methods you would use philosophically? Like how would you look at it based on what you understand about contextual intelligence. I mean, obviously, check out the context of the town, but describe if you were going to do that, how, some of the steps you'd go about. Well, first of all, what's your, how many zip codes are there in your town? Just one zip code. Okay. So then I would get to know that zip code as much as I could, and I'd get to know the day zip code and the night zip code because every zip code has a flip side. You've got the nocturnal, which is a whole different context. Um Different people lit, come out at night. They shop at night. They they appear at night and they work at night. And so I'd want to know as much as I could about the day zip code and the night zip code. Then everything would come from from there. How do I then fall in love with what makes that zip code so unique, so special? Um, how can I show that place God loves them? And how can I incarnate the gospel in that in that context of that unique? particularity of that that zip code yeah but what about like my small group and my core team and looking for land and all that good kind of stuff no no it doesn't start there it starts <laughs> with <laughs> it starts with how does jesus how can we show jesus that this zip code that jesus loves them and uh and it may and increasingly it will not involve land it, it will involve uh more tables and homes and and uh, rented facilities and all sorts of things. Okay, so you said table. You had to go and say table. Oh, stories, stories around the table, right? And then you, you've got preachthestory.com. And by the way, for ev- everything we talk about today, it's going to be right in the show notes, all the links to stuff that we talk about. And then you can search Len Sweet and good luck because you're going to be looking at stuff for a while. But Len, stories around the table, you have talked about, you've talked about the table in the Amish community, in the Jewish community. Uh, you've talked about how important it is to tell stories and to find your identity through, through a narrative and not just through facts and information. And then you've got this preachthestory.com where you're encouraging pastors to preach 
the way the Bible is written. How how are those connect those two things for us for a minute? Again, you're you're talking to pastors of mostly ordinary sized churches. Stories around the table, stories around the platform, stories around the living room. Talk to us about that for a minute. Well, Jesus' main method of instruction and teaching was uh, storytelling. I mean, he's the greatest storyteller who ever lived. And and that's we, we've turned these incredible stories, which are in the Gospels, into these verses and uh, these sliced and diced the stories up into these chapter and verses. And what I'm trying to get pastors to do is to rediscover the stories of Jesus again and and um, I mean, tell me the stories of Jesus. And, and we have a sense, biblical inspiration is seen as basically the inspiration of words. But I, I'm really more and more hmm. inclined to see the inspiration as much of the as the stories hmm. and the metaphors that Jesus uses. These are inspired stories, uh, Jeff. These are these are inspired metaphors and the stories are even more inspired, if you will, than the words. So we, we, so you, these stories have healing power. These metaphors have healing power that Jesus used. They have saving power. That's what sozo means: save, heal. Same word. So let's. So we, you save and you heal through these stories and through these uh, metaphors, and not just through the words. We've been trying the words. Now it's time to really get back to the biblical framework, which is uh, to lift up the stories. So as a pastor, like, you know, I got to go out every weekend. This month, I'm not speaking three of the four Sundays. As it turns out, it's a, it's a gift and a miracle, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm preaching this coming weekend. How, how, do you, how do I think about preaching when I'm putting together a preaching calendar? I'm thinking about content. I'm thinking about, you know, topical versus textual, all that stuff. How do I fit stories in that? Do I think stories all the time? Yeah. Or, yeah, that's really, and I'll answer that. I'll turn it over to Michael. But I have a lectionary vlog on YouTube, and I just did my fifty-second mm-hmm. vlog where I just show you how to do this. And for example, this week the lectionary reading was um, the 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 two, and it, you sometimes I get really frustrated with lectionary. This time I was really thankful huh. and, and thank God for the person who who did it because they were. They just, uh, they really aced it, but it was not, it was numbers 21, the story of the broad serpent. And then it was John John three, you know, the most familiar passage of scripture, which is John three, uh, 16. But it it was also John, it was the whole passage there, the Nicodemus passage, Mm -hmm. which we don't even think of this for God so loved the world, the most famous passage in all the Bible, the most famous verse. But we don't think of it in terms of its context. The context is a story of Nicodemus who came to him by night. I call it Nick by night. And <laughs> um, and the first thing, though, that that well, what fronts everybody can say John three sixteen. They can recite it together. But can they? Then I say, well, can you recite John three fifteen? And nobody can. But John three fifteen, you have one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible fronted. By one of the strangest, as the as Moses li- lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted mm. up. It, here's a really so. What's the context of G- this most famous passage? The context is the, the you could call it history's first vaccine, as the people of Israel are healed from these these snake bites by the very thing that was 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 killing them as they as they faced looked the snake in the eye. It was lifted up in front of them. And they looked at it, they faced it, outfaced it, repented, and they were healed by the very thing that had that was killing them. And and the same with what Jesus is doing. It's a medical symbol, by the way. This the the bronze snake on the on the staff, the symbol yes. of the symbol of on ambulances. It's a symbol of medicine. The World Health Organization that's their symbol. So it, the whole context of this, for God so loved the world, is in the context of healing, wholeness, health, uh, restoration of of wholeness and, and wellness after being sick and and uh, and dying and and so we we uh, so the whole context here uh, this great the most familiar passage of scripture is totally lost because we aren't reading it as a story we just take out the verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only we don't understand the whole context of this is is the context of God wants to 
save us and heal us, and it means the same thing. Oh, Len, you are so kind. I'm preaching this week in a series called Encounters with Jesus, and I've been given the topic healing. Mm. <laughs> so did you did you say that was Numbers 21? <laughs> yeah, Numbers 21, 4 to 9, yeah. Save it. Okay, four, two, nine. Okay, Sozo saving here. Yeah, yeah. Look, on, look on my YouTube channel. It's all there. I've seen it. No, I've seen it. I've seen it. it but that posted this morning. It just posted when, this. when uh, you yeah, but you've got you've got an older something where you've talked about that because uh, I've I've heard that from you before. But what the the money here is first vaccine in history. I didn't get that before, so I just wrote that down. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, stories, and uh, that's good. And so, Michael, you just came through about with COVID. I hope you don't mind me saying that. Is that okay? Oh yeah, no problem. Okay, so you're like the, you're like the COVID uh, wonder I man. Have, I have the snake bitten vaccine in my veins. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, and, but he does. Yeah. And the, the teeth marks on your arm. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering, speaking of stories, this is part of your story now. You said, you just said to Len and I a few minutes ago, this thing almost took me out, and I'm young and strong and healthy. Mm-hmm. T- tell us the story just a little bit. And I mean, we're talking about context. That's the context of this conversation, is that you're, you're starting to feel better. So talk to us about that for a minute. Yeah. So interestingly, um, my team met yesterday, my preaching team. We have a distributed team at my church. And um, so we have a mix of lay people and pastors who we get together. We, we uh, kind of plan out the sermon series. Um, and it was my first time to actually be able to be with my team on a screen long enough that I didn't get a headache because that was part mm. of the during thing for me with COVID was these headaches that just like I've never had before. But what we were talking about, so Lynn did this uh, reflection back in the very beginning of COVID on um, where are the healers? Hmm. Um, And it's on Facebook, his Facebook. He just did it. It's like thousands and thousands of people have viewed it. But I was tuned in on that as he was doing it. And I wrote a chapter. I've had a book come out since my book with Lynn too, Fresh Expressions in a Digital Age. And I have a chapter based on his thinking around this, where are the healers? And I can tell you right now, Jeff, my experience just with COVID just affirmed, you know, things I've been thinking about in a theoretical way. And as a pastor, I'm trying to protect my flock from the virus. And I'm thinking about it as this thing that's out there, but not necessarily that I'm now one of the statistics of it. And um, so how did it affirm? What did it affirm? It, it affirmed that the church has no idea what to do with this concept of healing, that we've, we've got in the save your soul business. And we leave the healing up to the professionals, like my two daughters that are nurses in the COVID unit at our local hospital. And and it affirmed for me, like even with my own people and and my own, uh, you know, United Methodist system and all that, we don't have anything. We have no idea how to be healers anymore. And it comes back to the question that Lynn was asking, like in seminary, did you get a course on how to be a healer? Um, and I think one of the 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 key things that when I look out into the digital age and I see like psychiatrists and counselors and telehealth um, and website manner and how we're using these technologies to bring sozo, to bring healing, to bring salvation in the full sense of the word, like shalom, like peace and the kingdom of God coming into the earth, that we as the church, we have been kind of not real quick to run to the fault line of those things, even though, you know, St. Basil back in the 300s AD was one of the first uh, people to ever create a hospital for people that were poor, experiencing poverty and sick. And, and the hospital system that we have today was pioneered and created and the whole ethics around medicine was pioneered by Christians. And so we've kind of stepped back and defaulted rather than rushing to the, the the front lines and trying to figure out how to be healers in a pandemic world, we've kind of just stayed in the we'll save your soul business and leave the, uh, you know, the professionals up to the healing. And I think that's just a, a sad thing because you, you ask people in the world today about the church and its role in the pandemic and and the response is not good. Like people don't see a connection between church and healing. Yeah, we just deny it. Right. And, and Jesus <laughs> healed people. 
And, and Jesus told us to heal people. You know, it's, that's an essential part of, of what our, our mission in the earth is to be healers. So. And so, Michael, are you, are you describing this physiologically, holistically? In what way? Just define that a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking holistically. Like, we can't leave out the body. We can't get stuck in the, what has been this very individualistic approach um, to discipleship and evangelism and church in general um, that, that, you know, we'll take care of the soul. But uh, we have to figure out a, a way to create uh, communities of hospitality where, where people can find healing and wholeness mm-hmm. physically, mentally, um, spiritually, and every other part of our every dimension of our humanity that's created in the image of God. So I am coming out of COVID talking about this, and it's a little fresh and a little raw for me right now. Um, but the the thing that my team came up with, so we're preaching on this Sunday, what Lynn just described, and I'm thankful I've been under his teaching enough that I kind of, uh, we, we that came out in our sermon that we're going to do Sunday, that Jesus lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, the very image of our brokenness, the very thing that's killing us, the, the poison of sin that's flowing through our veins that's embodied on the cross is the symbol of hope that neutralizes the poison of brokenness in our veins and gives us the antidote that we're then to share with the world, right? The vaccine of God's love. Our team is getting ready to talk about that and preach about that. And we're asking ourselves, what does that look like practically? Like, how do we be healers in a COVID world that's going to continue to be a world in, in need of healers for a long time to come? That's going to be, like Lynn says, the central role of the church is to figure out how to be healers again. Lynn, you probably have some input on that because I'm thinking context now. The context for us is there's a lot of people that are that are that are scared. A lot of people that are bereft of some income right now. There, there's needs. So churches have benevolent funds, uh, but we've got more than benevolent funds, right? There's thinking holistically. How should we as pastors be thinking? What opportunities are there right now? in our communities that we're not seeing based on the context of COVID, economy, race, et cetera? Well, I, I think one thing that um, this whole COVIDian era has taught us, Jeff, is that the, the well-being and health of one person depends on the well-being and health of the whole planet, of everybody. Hmm. We're all in this together. Um, Buckminster Fuller a long time talk about uh, spaceship Earth, and I think it's about time to bring back. I think it was back in the '60s he introduced that. It's about time to bring that back. That we're all on this the ship together, um, and that the health and well-being of one is dependent on the health and well-being of them all. So it's time for the church to start being what God called it to be the the, the ship of Zion that is here to um, be out there on the high seas where people are drowning and hurting and to um, to, to do that kind of healing uh, message and that spread that healing vaccine that is that is Jesus. And, and that's our main task here is to is to lift up Christ. And um, if he's lifted up, he will do the, the healing. He will do the saving. And so. The church has been lifting up a lot of things. We've been lifting up leadership. We've been lifting up all sorts of apps on how to have a better marriage and how to have a better um, uh, management style, <laughs> everything. But it's time to lift up Christ again. And he is the He is the healer, uh, Jehovah Rapha. Um, and he is the one that heals us. How do we go about helping people financially in our communities? Because, you know, we just, the COVID relief bill has just passed as just before we record, we're recording this. And we know that people are, are going to be getting checks and they're going to be getting deposits. And we, we don't want to be, our favorite book, I think sometimes as churches is, uh, what is it? Helping, helping that hurts. Is that the book where, you know, well, we don't, we don't want to enable people. We, we don't want to help people too much. How do you think we should think about that? as pastors and churches in this time? We have two things to deal with here. One is that 62% of the U.S. population has gotten wealthier year after COVID. 38% has been hurt dramatically. 62% has been helped tremendously. 
So it's another case of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. So some people are getting really rich off of COVID. Some people are, especially in the service industry, which has been hit the hardest, um, are really, really hurting. So it's that. So how do we bring those two together? How do we help the the people that are getting richer from the COVID and from all the, the, the impact of what that means to to help to build these bridges between the rich that are getting richer and the poor that are getting poor. And that's that's the that's the challenge of the church is to bring those two together and to bring them into relationship and for them to to realize that the rich need the poor as much as the poor need the rich now and the rich need to to be uh, in ministry and relationship with with the poor. That is so hard, practically speaking, to do with people who are in their community bubble and they're not around and they don't see any of the 32%. And now they know how quickly riches can get siphoned out of the out of the bank account and out of the society. So those 68% are wanting to actually do, oh, good, now I've got more. Now I've got a better buffer for the next disaster that's going to hit. So they don't want to get rid of it. And they don't even see the 32% that are poorer. How do you bri- how do you bridge that gap, practically speaking? Well, that's the essence of the gospel. I mean, you lift up Christ <laughs> because Christ. I mean, his his commissioning sermon was from Isaiah. They handed him the, the scroll, and and so he chooses a text from Isaiah. And the text that he chooses is that that um, that he is he is sent here. He's on a mission. The spirit of the Lord is upon him to do what? And he itemizes three things: poor prisoner and sick. I mean, so if it's not good news for the poor, it's not the Jesus gospel. If it's not good news for the prisoner, it's not the Jesus gospel. If it's not good news for the sick and wounded, it's not the Jesus gospel. So that's the essence of the gospel itself. So if the church is not in that business, then it's it's not being the church because that's the gospel business. The poor, the prisoner, the sick and wounded. So then we're what Reggie McNeil calls the country club. Bingo. Yeah. Well, now we're back to the problems. <laughs> problems that us pastors face to to challenge our people to that. I like what you you know, the poor, the sick, and the prisoner. That's so it's it's like uh love mercy, right? Walk humbly, act justly. Bingo. Uh, it's, it's a checklist. It's, I mean, if you're not hearing this, if this not reaching out to the poor, the prisoner, and the and the broken, and it's not Jesus. And so that's that's the checklist. And how many how many times have you heard about the prisoner? How many times have you heard about the the broken and the wounded? I mean, we hear about the poor, but we're not doing much about it. In my last church, one of my small group members says, "Jeff, I feel like everything you teach, it always ends up to the poor, filthy, rotten, dirty bum." But I've got to think about the poor, filthy, rotten, dirty bum. I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm glad to hear that because I love that. Yeah. That that poor, filthy, rotten, dirty bum makes me go very introspective and oh. think. You know, there's a lot of things to think about when you think about him, the classic stereotypical person like that. And sometimes, you know, I get accused of talking too much about love. I talk too much about love. They've already they've already heard that. They don't need to keep hearing that over and over. And it's that classic retort: when you start living it, I'll stop preaching it, type of a thing. But I know that because when I start living it, I'll stop preaching it, living it fully. Because I think that's always our that's always our our aim. Michael, we've talked to you already, so our listeners heard you on the last episode, and you are in some smaller settings smaller situations they very much can identify with you i'm interested now we're we've got len on the line and what what are maybe the top two things that you've learned from that guy as you've collaborated with him and kind of sat at his feet perhaps over the years what what have you learned from him there's so much i mean if i have to narrow it down i would say um you know this idea of loving your zip code so much that you weep over it, like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Um, And really, in my time alone with Jesus, asking myself, do I deeply love this community and the people in it enough um, 
to, to give myself away to them and to, to know this context, um, like what we suggest in the book by walking the context and having, uh, sharing in people's stories in the context and spending time with the people in the context. Just to give you a kind of a flesh and blood example, when our, when the, when COVID hit, we had to pivot our dinner church, which is totally aimed at, um, folks that, would love to come and have a full four course community dinner um, Mm. where we, we just get to love on them and bring them to the banquet table of God's grace. And there's a Jesus story and we train all of our people to share Jesus stories uh, in a simple kind of way. And we had to, to stop that because it became, you know, a threat to people's health. So we pivoted and started a drive through community dinner where people came through, they get their meal, we give them a link um, to Zoom, and if they can join us for Supper Table Church, if they have internet access and a device, they can bring their meal home, and they can then join a bunch of others who are sitting around a digital table. And Hmm. this is a a no-no for Lynn, by the way. Uh, But we we put screens at the table, and we we kind of, it's an extended table, if you will. But uh, so, so that, that, led us to start, my wife and I start asking people, these are people who would never come to our church before. Now they're in a situation, they've lost their job. They're, so they're coming and have never had to go to a church before to get a meal. And so we started saying, hey, uh, would you like to come have dinner at our home some night? Um, and inviting people into our home and, and hearing their stories, people that don't go to our church. So, you know, you mentioned the country club and, and then that numbers passage why does God send the snakes to begin with? Because the people are grumbling and they're trying to go back to Egypt and they're trying to go back to the good old days and not move forward into the promised land because the the disorientation and, you know, this dang manna that falls from the sky. Dang it, God, you provide for us every day, but we we, we want more. So that's kind of been the greatest struggle in, in my context has been, you know, when are we going to get back to normal uh, when, when can we go back to the way things used to be? And it's really hard for us all, including me, to realize it's not ever going to go back to that. Probably not in my lifetime, for sure, in most of our lifetimes. So how do we just live into the new space? Um, how do we actually lift up the, the, the hungry and the sick and the prisoners and do that in new and fresh and creative ways? Um, so, so another thing that we did was we, we turned our church space into a, a inpatient Christian rehab. So we have a great relationship with our local jail and our sheriff's department. And we, we have, a, um, called house of hope. So a lot of churches, we have all this space. We are never using it. Maybe the biggest space we have available, we use it on Sundays for two hours a week or whatever. So we started thinking about how do we repurpose our space in a missional way where actually it's being used to do those things that Jesus, um, you know, emphasized in his own ministry. So those are be those that would be my answer. You know, understanding that that good news has to be good news for the poor, the sick, and the prisoners. You know, Lynn taught me that. Understanding my context that I have to love my context the way that Jesus loves my context. And that all ministry really has to start there. That's really good because the flow uh, of the current of the culture will take us pastors and church leaders away from those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not afraid that uh, we're not going to go back to normal. And, and I'm 100% serious here. I'm afraid that we are going to go back to normal and that we shouldn't mm-hmm. for, for my context because <laughs> – 65 to 70 percent of my people are back and we've got a big building we got a big auditorium we can move the chairs uh space them around we can have two services everybody's got room everybody can feel safe and we've got a lot of our people coming back we've had a lot of new people even since covid started but it's so that the pull is so strong to go back to doing what we were doing before. It almost like, and like you, Michael, I, I'm like, I can't think this way. I got to change my mindset somehow. How do I change my thinking? Because it just gets it gets pulled back between the lines. Just stay on the road, stay between the lines. Don't veer off. Don't go four-wheeling. Don't get muddy. 
And I think those are the, the, exactly the things that we are to do. The pull to stay the same is so strong. Speak to that, Len. Help me out here. Give me a shot in the arm. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm with you. I, my fear is that we do go to a, I don't think there is a pre-COVID preset um, or reset, but I am afraid that we're going to try and go back to the, 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 the days when, uh, you know, the good old days that we remember that we never had. So this is a, God is doing something new and fresh. I, I believe that God is uh, bringing his church into a whole new um, uh, and proper um, default setting that we've been in a bad default for a long time. And, um, and so I'm excited about it. I, uh, I think that this is a whole uh, new new moment for the church and um, I'm, I'm excited that I'm here to be a part of it. Well, Len, let me ask you just a couple random questions. You're involved with graduate students, correct? At a couple different seminaries. Right. Yep. Okay. What, what are you observing in graduate students today? How, how are they different today than they were, let's say 20, 25 years ago? What, what are their strengths and weaknesses? Because these graduate students are maybe they're the future of church leadership. And, and what is that looking like? What, what things are you worried about and what things are you excited about? Well, I'm excited about the willingness to um, embrace the future. I mean, I, I'm kind of self-selecting. So if you study with me, you're going to be uh, that's going to okay. be part of your gestalt. But they're really excited about the future. They are they're, they're, uh, chomping at the bit to uh, help the church to em- embrace uh, this new thing that God is doing. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about their ability to uh, think on multiple fronts and to uh, to embrace the whole, not just the head, but the heart and the hands all together. Um, I, I the, the, the biggest thing that worries me is that they're coming from backgrounds that do not have a lot of uh, biblical depth to them. In other words, they aren't mm. as well tutored in the stories because nobody has been. They, we've just been memorizing Bible verses. So to read the Bible narratively from a narrative standpoint and to learn the stories is is a real challenge. So some of the stories that I think I just refer back to, uh, allude to, but I think everybody would know, I have to go back again and and spend some more time uh, on those stories. That, but that's why they're they're there in graduate school. That's why they're studying with me. And so I'm I'm uh, I'm excited. These are some of the best students I've ever uh, I've ever taught and. And uh, again, they're self, somewhat self-selecting because they are. You study with me, you're going to be, do some semiotics. You're going to do some, some, um, you know, work with symbols and signs and metaphors and stories. But I, I do worry, Jeff, about the the biblical illiteracy that they've been brought up with in terms of the meta narrative of the scriptures. And it's not that they didn't go to church. You're saying it's not that they made it. Maybe even didn't grow up in church. So what can we as pastors do, because you're talking to pastors of average-sized churches around the country, really around around the world. Uh, we've got a lot of listeners in the U.K. and Australia. What do we as pastors do? What what are we missing? How can we change in these times? Well, I, I've said this to, um, to my students before, so um, I know that I'm bringing Coles to Newcastle here, but <laughs> I, if I were planning a, a church today, I would have one requirement for membership, and that is if you want to join this community, this tribe, whatever we're going to call ourselves, this mission, you have to stand in front of your brothers and sisters and for 10 minutes tell the whole story from Genesis to the maps. In your own words, tell me the story of Jesus from Genesis to the maps. That's going to narrow your membership, Len. Let me Pardon? just say it. That's going to narrow your membership just, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but that that shows you what we ought to be doing in our preaching. That's the that's our fault. It's our fault because we are we aren't telling the whole story. We aren't giving the whole story. We aren't allowing people and helping people to establish an identity in Christ out of the whole Christ story. Wow, I, I'm captivated by that passage in Luke 24. Where it says that he, you know, he went through the Old Testament and mm. well, the scriptures of their day, right, and talked about how they talked about him, and that's what you're talking about, right? Bingo. Talking yeah. about, yeah, 
the story and, of Jesus. And think about Jesus, what he did with the Emmaus disciples, uh, Cleopas and and Mary, and and how he opened up to them while they were on that walk, yeah. and and told the whole. Story. What was it like to hear Jesus tell? The whole story in exactly. one sitting. I mean, I just sense chills up my spine. What would it have been like to have been there? Uh, it, but you notice, even when he was done, they still didn't recognize him. <laughs> no, they no, still, but their hearts did burn. Their hearts did burn within them. Later, yeah, exactly. But interesting. Yeah, that was the first Methodist, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I have to admit, I did have to look up the word semiotics, and I do like talking to people who use the word, you know, gestalt, because you don't, you know, you don't get that every day. Okay, I'm so, sorry. I'm no, sorry. I like it. I like it. This is why. This is why I do this. So, what, one more question: What is today's pastor's biggest misconception about preaching? The biggest blind spot about preaching. In like the typical, and I know there's not a typical, but what's the biggest blind spot for pastors right now in the area of preaching? Well, it's something that I have to remind myself every week, and sometimes I do it, sometimes I forget it. So I have to actually remind myself of this, but you, you don't prepare a sermon, you prepare the preacher. That's the ultimate in preaching, is not when you're preparing a sermon to deliver, but when you're preparing the preacher. Uh, and when a preacher is prepared and is living the story, those are the real best sermons. That might narrow our topic list a little bit too, Len. Exactly. Uh, as as we land the plane here, what can you say to bring some encouragement uh, to a pastor of a smaller church? And again, we have we have uh, bivocational pastors, church planners. Uh, intentional, long-term, maybe lifetime bivocational uh, pastors, as well as pastors that are in their 50s and 60s, and they're in the church of 50 or 60, and it can be discouraging. Well, I'll say something, and then Michael can close it, but you're, you're describing the church of the future. This is uh, this is the church of the future, bivocational. I don't, I, there's only one vocation, so I don't like that bivocational thing. There's there's one vocation that has many uh, ways of serving it and mm. living it, but there's um, but it's it, the small church is is where the action at is at as far as I'm concerned. Um, people are wanting to live now in small towns and rural areas. Uh, I wouldn't call it an exodus from the cities, but the, the the energy is now in the in the small communities. So uh, I'm. I think that's where um, that's where the future is. Uh, so uh, I'm not, but I would, for me, do little large is how I'd put it in brief shorthand. That the what way, is success then? What is success if we can't go large? No, it's do little, do little, but in a large way. I oh, mean, I gotcha. Do little large. I have a very little house. It's two thousand square feet. Michael's been there. It's just very small. But I do little larger. I mean, so you come into this house and and it doesn't feel little. It feels large because it's full of hospitality and and stories and 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 it's it's just uh, charged and packed with with the energy of of the spirit. And so it's it's do little large and and the success in the future will be the resonance of an authentic voice that is little not large so it's all about the particular you do the particular well and that will be the way to the universal but you got to start with the particular with with the little with the small small is all i'm going to have to think about that i'm going to have to listen to that i'm going to edit this you know and then i'm going to listen to it and probably the third or fourth time through len i'm going to get all of that at least all that I'm going to get for now. <laughs> so thank you for that. Michael, Michael, land the plane here. Give us, give us some, uh, g you give us some encouragement. And again, you're just coming off of COVID. So <laughs> whenever I'm like really sick, I, I, I'll lay there and think this is the end of the world. Uh, but then when you get better, you're like, oh, you're so appreciative of being better. So, so what are you so appreciative about right now? Yeah, in the vein of uh, little large, 
I think a key to that and probably the hardest part for us as pastors is that this requires unleashing the whole people of God, the priesthood of all believers, um, the laity to explore their calling, to know that they were ordained in the waters of their baptism to be followers of Jesus in the world. I like the term co-vocational because it's about witness rather than, than two-ness. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I enjoy the fact, I know that I am not going to retire as a full-time clergy in the United Methodist system. Uh, we have a system that's not sustainable. And if if all the the majority of the world and the people that live in my context are, uh, are of the gig economy, working multiple uh, streams of income, I know that I need to be doing that as well because that's what incarnation is. And I see that the greatest hope that I have, Jeff, is when I was laid up and couldn't do anything. My lay teams, these are normal people, everyday Christians. I say normal, <laughs> just your ordinary, <laughs> yeah, yeah. your ordinary followers of Jesus who are extraordinary in every way, right? Yes, yes. Um, jump in there and preach and teach and sustain living room church seminary and all these things, watching them in their gifts and didn't miss a beat. And then myself feeling very insignificant, like, wow, they really don't even need me. Just, I think that's the future. Every follower of Jesus figuring out how we turn our normal stuff that we do every week in a burrito joint, in the library, in the, you know, running track, wherever it is, we're hanging out with people that church can form there, that the, the, the Jesus story can be shared in creative ways in those spaces and that every single follower of Jesus can do it. I think that's the way Jesus designed the church originally, and maybe we've gotten away from it. And I see one of the gifts that is coming out, if we resist, as you all said, going back to the the normal, um, that, that that is a possibility on the horizon that's before us, the whole people of God unleashed uh, in the world. I, I love that. I love that. No, normal people, right? That's why we talk about ordinary and normal size churches. And we've been, again, talking to these pastors for over eight years. Len, do you have time for one more question? Sure. My partner who's not with us on this episode, Johnny, uh, he is a 34-year-old young pastor who's been uh, pa- who's been speaking most weekends in uh, the secondary location of a multi-site church. He and his wife have moved two hours away because she has an online position that she can work from home. They've bought a 5,000-square-foot old brick house, and he is going to be—his church wants him to continue on but develop a completely online church experience, uh, a virtual campus, so to speak. So his senior does not want to lose him. And she said, hey— You've been doing this. He's got some kids with special needs, so he has been away from his people during COVID, and he has done everything, almost everything from Zoom. And she has said, "Hey, why don't you just why don't you just develop a virtual camp campus for us? Give him three minutes of free coaching here. What would you do if you were what, what would you do? He doesn't have a zip code. His zip code is an IP address." And everything is going to be virtual, but I told him you could do some, you could, because he's two hours away from the, the mother church, so to speak, you could do some like regional meetups, I suppose, at some point when things get better. But, but how, how would you even think to coach him on starting a completely virtual campus? Because this is, you know, this is happening, but he's really, I mean, he's on the cutting edge of this in the opportunity to do this. Yeah, well... Uh, the first thing I would do is we we have yet to anybody to develop or to really deepen our understanding of a digital ecclesiology. Hmm. Um, we need somebody to really focus on a digital ecclesiology. And what the danger that I see and what's happening now is that, you know, the, the, the expression, uh, you know, what colonialism, when I talk about colonialism, when mm-hmm. you try and impose on another culture your own culture. Right, right. And that's what we're doing online. We're, we're taking a Gutenberg culture that we're familiar with, a print culture, a book culture, and we're, okay, let's do, let's do what I'm familiar with in a Gutenberg world in a, in a TGIF world. That's Twitter, TikTok, G is Google, I, Instagram, F, Facebook, TGIF. And in a TGIF world, let's do what 
So we're, we're colonialists. We're just doing colonialism online. And we need to incarnate a digital ecclesiology, a digital understanding of the doctrine of the church and the nature of the church in this new medium that God has given us. And so most of the stuff that I see going on, even even with the, the front door now being to the church, the front door, front, front door being the internet, it's still uh, very colonial to me. It's still very Gutenberg. And when we need to really incarnate the gospel in this new digital mission field that is true to that mission field, that's where we need our kids. I mean, we, our kids can help us here. They understand this digital mission field better than we do. Release and unleash the, the creativity and the, the energy of our kids to help us uh, in this new, in this new uh, space. Can it be done? Is there such a thing as a digital ecclesiology? Yeah, absolutely. There's a print. There was a print ecclesiology. We, 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 did, we did a... Uh, church for the modern print culture, um, for the Enlightenment world. We had an Enlightenment ecclesiology. Let's have an ecclesiology of uh, an understanding of the nature of the church for a uh, a Google world. But ultimately, ultimately, it leads to face to face. Agreed. Now, of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's more flesh to flesh. I think I would, but because we're we're doing face to face online um the issue is the touch aspect here right so that's what i mean how do we yeah how, how do we do flesh to flesh um not just we're doing facetime all the time and zoom is face to face but how do we do flesh to flesh and that's the real front lines of a digital ecclesiology super well hey you guys it's been an hour so thank you so much i really appreciate it and uh, I will continue to follow Len. I have over the last month uh, tried to get as much up to speed on what you do. I have two of your books, and you know I started to read both of them years ago, and I never finished them. So uh, this is this has got me this has got me liquored up a little bit here on Len's sweet stuff, and and on this whole this whole fresh expressions too, and, yeah. and what that looks like has been fantastic. So thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff.